Oh, God is such a great God. Hey, I never, never want to be adversarial with my congregation. Um, I don't know if you've been to churches like that or heard preachers like that, that it seems like the reason they came that morning was to pick a fight with the church. Um, I, I, I've, I decided years ago that that was not uh, who I wanted to be or what I wanted to be. Um, I love you guys so much, and I'm so proud to be the pastor of this church and and the roles that you guys have in the community and here in this community and, and outside of here is, is phenomenal. It's, it's such an encouraging thing. Um, my hope is that as we're going through these sections on preparing for persecution, on preparing for suffering, <clears throat> that it doesn't ever feel like I'm beating you over the head with a Bible um, and, and, and trying to you know, demand some type of behavioral modification. That's um, that's not what I'm about. Um, I think there are times, though, when God's Word is adversarial to us, um, or rather, we're adversarial to God's Word, maybe even a more accurate way of saying that. The, the realization of the lack of readiness that hit me uh, last week or the week before um, was really about, about the fact that we aren't armed with a mindset to suffer, that our minds have not been conformed or transformed to the way of thinking of Christ when it comes to that, that was, that was hanging around my neck as a pastor and just as a man in, in ways that it never had before. Um, how unprepared I am to suffer. How my brain, how my thinking is not armed with that way of thinking. And, and understand, next, next week, there's, here, here is, imagine, I'm going to have to put together a sermon that, that centers around or that orbits around a verse like this in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. This is, this is a tough teaching. And for 2,000 years, the church has been wrapping its brain around and wrestling with the idea that there is a judgment that comes, and it comes first, and according to Peter, should come first for God's people. That this is, this is what we're looking for. Um, it, it's... <clears throat> I think in every, maybe every generation of Christians, but certainly I feel like we're at a place, we're at a pivot point in our culture. As, as Paul mentioned, I'll be teaching a worldview thing tomorrow night about the worldview shift that I think is happening in our culture um, tomorrow night. And, and recognizing, I think we're at a place where judgment is coming for us. Now, the judgment of the world is a given. Like, listen, we just need to know in advance, and part of having your, your mind armed, your, your thinking armed correctly um, as we looked at last week, is recognizing this judgment from the world is coming and it has come and we have been found wanting. Um, the world has judged us and is not happy with us. Um, the world has made some proclamations and made some decisions and demanded that we change what we believe. And when we say no, that means we're going to be found guilty. And this is, this is a given. This is coming. The world's judgment of us. But here's the thing. It's kind of like in today's world, it's kind of funny how in America right now, um, uh, with big issues. Now I'm talking about all the thousands of thousands and thousands of small issues that judges faced around the country, but the really big issues that we hear like, oh, this, this local court or this circuit court or this something ever made a decision, and we all think, yeah, who cares, right? All I want to know is what the Supreme Court says, right? What this court, because we all know what's going to happen. Oh, this court made a decision. Well, they're just going to, no matter who wins, they're going to appeal it. And they're going to peel it to the next court and the next court and the next court until finally they, these, all, these, all these, and they, they even, don't even report on it anymore. It's like, yeah, whatever, and until it gets to the Supreme Court. This, I think, is part of what the Apostle Peter is saying. Our mindset needs to be this. There is a supreme judge. 
There's a supreme judge who we face, and when we face judgment in between here and there, we don't need to be afraid of that. Even when we're found guilty, even if we're persecuted, even if we're put in prison, and even if we're killed. And this Peter's trying to prepare, because keep in mind, at this time, most of the person, not all of it, but most of the persecution a church was facing at this stage was relatively, um, it was focused more on cultural persecution, financial persecution. You couldn't run a business anymore because you were a Christian. You couldn't sell to certain people or do certain things, or, or you weren't invited under certain settings, or your, your, the, the, the training that you had, or the education that you had, or whatever was dismissed because you were a Christian. Like This, this is the persecution that they were facing still. The, the persecution against Christians was still really warming up in a lot of ways. Now, it was under the same leadership, and it was going to get ugly, and it already was ugly in some places, but I think Peter's really preparing people for this. It's, it's been fascinating to wrestle through what it's going to be like when the pressure comes, how quickly many in the church, and even in this church, bend the knee to the world's judgment because we're not willing to pay the price of what the world is called, demanding of us. And Peter's saying we need to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. He told us in the passage we looked at last week that that includes walking away from sin. We're going to read that this morning. But walking away from the sin in our life that we walk because the flesh makes us weak. And we're not as prepared for that. Another one is that we're supposed to remember the judge. And that there is a judge who transcends the other judges. And uh, I read a passage from it this morning, but realized we don't really have time for that. But there's a um, there's a book series called The Mark of the Lion by Francine Rivers. If you're someone who is a fiction-oriented kind of person, you might enjoy reading those as a conversation about persecution and what it's like to be persecuted and, and what it's like for people to face that. And, and the book kind of culminates in a speech <coughs> by one of the main characters um, who talks about the fear that she's had all her life, the fear that has saturated her whole life right up until the end when she faces that moment of persecution and she has to recant or die. And she chooses Christ and she says in that moment all of her fear vanished. There's something about that that's very powerful. So that may be something that's encouragement to you to, to read a series like that if that's the kind of thing that inspires you, connects to you. I want to read last week's passage to build up into this week, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. That's all this is going to be from moving forward. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, but no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in this flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. We will be judged in the flesh the way people are. Our goal is to live in the Spirit the way God does. And it's wild to live in an era when it's, it's not even, we're not, as Christians, we're not maligned merely for not engaging in the sin. But now we are maligned for not celebrating the sin. We're maligned for not, for not rejoicing in the sin. That that's sufficient, just that, that you draw a line and say, I won't rejoice in that sin, I won't celebrate that sin, I won't approve of that sin. That alone can have you maligned, persecuted, mistreated in different ways. It can cost you something just to not take the stance 
in support of sin. Now, that last verse said something about preaching to those who are, of the, who <coughs> are dead. Let me read it again. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the Spirit the way God does. And I don't want to fly past that as if that's not consequential. You may, that may be a passage that confuses you. Um, so what are some options for what to do with this idea of preaching to those who are dead? Well, different, different opinions are out there. Here's four quick options. One is that there were dead bodies and somebody preached to them. Um, that actually is one of the views, and there are people who think that maybe that happened, that there was someone who had died, who had not heard the gospel, and so they would literally preach to their dead body. It's not super likely for a lot of reasons. Um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but, but some people lean in that direction. A more common one is that there were dead people in heaven or somewhere like that, and someone went and preached the gospel to them because they never heard the gospel before they died. And so the, answer, the concept is they died, and they went someplace, and they're there, and then Jesus dies on the cross and goes, maybe even like the, the idea that we studied in an earlier passage, they went and proclaimed to them. Remember, we talked about that as one of the options for that passage, proclaimed the truth to them, proclaimed his victory to them, and they got a chance to respond. Even if that were the case, even if that were accurate, that doesn't mean people who die today would have that same chance. Um, they have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. The gospel is there. But um, that's not one, I don't lean towards that one either at all, but, but um, that's one option. The gospel, another one is, the gospel was preached to people who were alive when they heard it, even though they're dead now. That that's all he's saying is, listen, we preach to those who are dead now. We did so when they were alive. And that's part of why is because we knew they would face judgment. And we don't want people to face judgment without hearing it. We preach to people when they're alive because they're still alive and they have yet to face that judgment, people who needed to be preached to. I lean towards this fourth one, although that one makes a lot of sense. I lean toward this fourth one a lot because of the passage itself, and that is that there are two types of dead people. There are living and there are dead. There's two types of living people, the living and the dead. There's two types of people, in other words, the living and the dead. We preach even to the dead because they know they will be judged. Look at what the passage says if you go up a verse. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There you get the word dead. You don't want to make the word dead mean a totally different thing in the, next, in the very next verse. But they are give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. For though they are judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And I think Peter is pointing this out. Judgment is coming for everybody. Everyone will face judgment. Now, this is a, a wild concept for us to wrestle through, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but, but to recognizing this idea that there are living and dead, and we preach to both. We don't know who's living and dead, and even if we did, we would preach to both if we knew who, who out there was living and who out there was dead, and who out there was going to face judgment and find that they are dead when they face judgment, and those who are going to find they're living when they face judgment, we would still preach it to everybody because there is judgment coming. This division of living and dead is clear. Jesus taught it all the time. He often divided the world into two populations, um, essentially the living and the dead, the sheep and the goats, for example, the wheat and the tares. John 3, 36, <coughs> Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. <clears throat> Keep in mind, these are people whose hearts are beating and whose brains are waving, and yet Jesus is saying they won't even see life. So there's a, there's a distinction between being alive um, and living in this concept. The wrath of God remains on him. Jesus says, the one who has not seen life, who does not love 
the Son, who does not obey the Son. It's important to recognize judgment is coming and suffering is imminent. This is a hardship that we have a hard time with. In fact, listen to what the verse 7 begins with. The end of all things is at hand. Now, that's a, that's a, I think that's worth stopping for, isn't it? The end of all things is at hand. I feel like this type of statement is significant. In fact, in the King James, you may know what the King James says here. What does the King James say? The end is nigh. That's right. I think we have it. This is what we picture when we hear the phrase, the end is nigh. We picture some crazed homeless guy on the side of the, side of the road with a sign that says the end is nigh. Um, the, the battle is here. This is what this means. It's here. If you're preparing for it, stop preparing. It's too late. You've got to arm yourself. Now is the time to take up arms. The battle is here. The end is nigh. Um, we were talking about this on Tuesday on the podcast um, that we have. We, 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 uh, you may not know, we actually have a meeting and we now we just we podcast the meeting. That's essentially what we're trying to do because people thought that would be fun. And, uh, and so this, when we're discussing it, Paul brought up, a, I think, a professor of his who had said, eschatology, meaning the study of end times, the study of the end um, of the time. And so the end times, eschatology without ethics is wrong. Ethics meaning right behavior. In other words, what you believe about the end of time should affect the way you live now. That what you believe about what's coming should affect the way we live our lives now. And Peter is saying that. Listen, the end is nigh. It's coming. This, the fact that we believe this should affect how we live our lives. Is it though? I mean, Peter said this 2,000 years ago. The end is nigh, right? And yet, it, it seems to not have come yet. At least the end, capital T, capital E, hasn't come yet. This is a quick reference back to the judgment of the quick and dead, and maybe it's also about the imminent sufferings. There's a judgment coming. There's an end coming. Peter's going to create a big therefore statement on this concept that we're going to build to. So this really matters. The end is coming. He's referencing the end, the final end, the, the, the when things are actually going to end, but I think Peter's talking about more than just that end. Keep in mind, Peter, Peter is living in an era when the Romans have already invaded Israel. There's already a siege going on around Jerusalem. The Romans are already killing people because the, the Jews had rebelled against Roman rule. This, he's probably, some people think this was written within a year of when Jerusalem is going to fall and thousands and thousands are going to die. And so that end is also near, quite literally. And Jesus taught about that end on a regular basis. People would destroy Jerusalem. That had already hap- begun to happen. That end was near. A cultural end was nigh. A change for the status of Christians was nigh. Many, many, many were going to die in this change. There's that one. And also for each of us, the end is near. We will unpack the idea of 2,000 years of waiting when we get to 2 Peter, Lord willing, unless Jesus comes back, unless the end actually does come, that the end does come before then. Um, but suffice that Peter also is engaging with this at the personal level. So I'm 100% sure that Doug Foreman, who usually sits, he used to sit right over there, first service, um, that we did his memorial service on Wednesday, that if Doug could come back and give us a message right now, what he would tell you is the end is nigh. Your end is. This is is a guy who was here on Sunday and then was sick on Wednesday and on Friday had to go to the hospital and ask us to bring some underwear up to him in the hospital, which Paul did, and by the next Friday he was dead. 
And, and if Doug was here, he, would not, he wouldn't feel used with me using that example. In fact, he'd love for me to use that example to remind you the end is nigh. None of us are promised another day. If after a pandemic and economic breakdowns and a snowpocalypse, if you still think a worldly future is secure, I can't help you. Uh, your delusion is too deeply ingrained. If after the last two years you still think that life on earth is secure, I got nothing for you. But this was a slap in my face. I got to share this with you. A slap in my theological face. Um, as I read through this and was reading through this idea of the end being nigh and read this by Albert Barnes. Um, Barnes notes is one of my favorite um, commentaries on Scripture. Here's what Albert Barnes said. This declaration is also evidently designed to support and encourage them in their trials and to excite them to lead a holy life by the assurance that the end of all things was drawing near. Did you catch that? How messed up is my theology that as a Christian, I think the phrase, the end is near, is a warning, not a comfort. Only someone who had become too inured in this life, who had fallen in love too much with the joys of this life and the pleasures of this life, wouldn't hear the phrase, the end is near, and say, thank God. Because that's how the Christians thought of this phrase. And until I read Barnes' notes, I thought the end is nigh as a warning. And the this may be the important, most important thing in this sermon, is that we have to be reminded of the fact that the truth, the end is nigh, is meant to, be, is meant to create a sigh of relief. You're almost there. You can quit soon. It's almost over. The end is nigh. The fact that we fear the end is a proof that maybe we don't know Jesus as well as we ought. We don't connect with Him. We, don't, we certainly don't identify with Him well enough. As He hung there on the cross or as He was being beaten, how He must have thought, the end is near. Just a little while longer. You've almost made it. Don't quit now. My favorite Christian author, uh, Rich Mullins, years and years ago, he died in 97, wrote a song called Elijah. And uh, this, is, this is the part of the, um, the middle of the song here. But when I leave, I think we have this one too. When I leave, I want to go out like Elijah with a whirlwind to fuel my chariot of fire. When I look back on the stars, it'll be like a candlelight in Central Park, and it won't break my heart to say goodbye. This, this is the persecution-proof life. This is the suffer-ready faith. It won't break my heart to say goodbye. When it comes time to say goodbye, I'll count it a relief. I know that's hard, especially the younger you are, the harder that can be. The thought that we should count it a relief. The thought that it would be over. Peter then says, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. These two phrases, these two Greek phrases are almost, almost synonyms. Self-controlled meaning smart thinking. Things that lead to a safe life, a good life. I mean, it's, the phrase, it's essentially the phrase that I use with my 10-year-old son, Michael, all the time. Make good decisions. Right? Hey, make good decisions, buddy. You need to make some good decisions here. That's what we're... We say that all the time. That's this, self-controlled. Make good decisions. And then sober-minded. This is the opposite of babbling drunk that we talked about last week. Sober-minded versus babbling drunk. Come to your senses. Focus your attention. But here's what's wild. The passage says to, to be this, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
Again, that's just the, the phrase for the sake of your prayers is just two Greek words. One intended for the purpose of in order to and prayer. In order to pray for the purpose of praying. I don't, I don't know about you, but the hardest part for me about prayer is focus. To focus my attention. And I think it's fascinating that Peter, of all people, is writing this. Peter, the patron saint of all of us with ADD, that he would say, hey, listen, you've got to sit, you've got to focus your attention. You've got to clear your mind and focus in. This isn't some weird, the idea that prayer is some devotional feeling. It's not that. It's not centering. It's not just being present in the moment. Those are all fine. Those are all fine concepts, but they aren't prayer. Prayer is not feeling something about God. It is focusing your thoughts to speaking and listening to God. And I'm awful, awful, awful at it, I'll tell you. I, it takes me about 30 minutes to clear my mind and focus my attention. And I rarely have 30 minutes. I rarely, let me raise that. I rarely set aside the 30 minutes to do that just to get the right focus in place so that I can then really, really pray for the foot. This is one of the reasons we do sabbaticals. Um, as a staff here um, for the ministers, is because the natural tendency is we put those disciplines in place. When we have time to set aside that time, um, last, last five years ago when I went on sabbatical, I learned to have coffee with God. Just to sit for 30 or 45 minutes or an hour and sip coffee and talk to God and hang out and listen and let all the distractions go away and let, just be able to focus there. And then slowly but surely over the next few years, Things begin to, to worm their way into that time and, and they kind of wedge their way in and there's little panics and there's little urgencies and there's, there's little things and they slowly but surely, they kind of fall off my calendar or, or they're kind of a joke that they're on my calendar that I look at them like, oh, uh, wow, I need to meet with this person. The only time I have left is during that hour and I mean, I'll, I can always pray tomorrow. I'll just today, I'll, <coughs> I don't know if this is just me or if you face this crisis as well of slowly but surely those things happening, I, um, and so that we have a set aside of time to reestablish some of those disciplines in our life, that we focus our life and we make good decisions. It's one of the prayers I have for Rebecca while she's on sabbatical is that all those things that are the best, for her it would be tea, sitting and having tea with God is happening. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So we walk away from sin, we remember the judge, we focus in prayer, this is to create that suffer-ready life, and we love one another. Man, when you face suffering, there's nothing like friends. They're the most valuable aspect when you're facing challenges. I'm going to read from this in just a second. But um, this, uh, this idea of covering, it's the same word or similar word to the one that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that people should wear. certain people should wear head coverings of some kind. One of the biblical concepts that we run into is that sin and debt are absolved. We have a hard time with this, by the way. This idea of sin and debt being absolved, meaning blotted out. We can, we can kind of comprehend the idea of God forgiving us, but the idea that He then takes liquid paper to that last number at the bottom of the ledger of sins, when it all adds up, there's a number that's there of how much we owe Him, and He kind of blots that out. He, he, he just pushes it off the paper. He, he kind of scrubs it off. So there's just this blurry mess down there when you get there. There's this liquid paper that's there that you can't see when you look through it. He's, he's blotted it out. That's hard for us to wrap our brains around it. That's when God looks at our sin and he goes, okay, let's, let's take the ledger book. Man, this is a big book. Wow, this is good. I, I tell you, I'm going to skip all the way to the end and we'll go to the end and see what your final debt owed is. And oh, there's nothing there. Apparently you don't know anything. Somebody else must have taken this debt for you and already paid it off. 
It's, it's that picture. We have a hard time imagining that. This isn't fully the same thing. This is the idea of something being covered over. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means you don't see it. It's the word for veiled. And, and it's a fascinating idea that we can offer this to one another because we love each other. People, people think it's weird when I hire people into my life or befriend people in my life or, or bring people whatever as in my life, and I know how messed up they are. Sometimes they've been former clients or, or I've worked with them long enough or I was their mentor or they were my mentor and we, we know how jacked up each other is and, and I know what and irritates them about me and they know what irritates me about them. And I could say it. I could sit down and go like, man, this is how this guy drives me nuts. He drives me nuts. And they're like, but you're hiring him. Why would you do that? And I realize not everyone has the same understanding, which I think is an understanding. I, I, I divide the world into two groups, those who I understand how they're messed up and those who I don't know how they're messed up. There's not a third group. If you go like, well, we ought to, you ought to hire people who aren't messed up. Yeah, mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? If you know any of those people, let me know. That'd be great. Now, they're going to have to put up with me because I am. <clears throat> the truth is, the fact that we love each other is what covers the multitude of sins. That's, that's what allows us to, to, to work together and to serve together and to be married to one another and to, to parent each other and, and whatever, that, we, that love covers that multitude of sins. Everybody who works for me has to put up with my sins. And they've got, they've got, hopefully they love me enough to cover those up. They're like, yeah, well, you know. And I do the same thing for them. My love covers a multitude of their sins. This is the, one of the most graceful phrases anywhere written by anybody of any time. Love covers a multitude of sins. This, it's a great picture that we can really embrace and engage with. I think, I, hopefully, as a church, that we would learn to love each other that well as well. This is something that, as Christians, my opinion, this is why we could actually be leading, and I know many, many are trying, trying to be leaders in regards to different aspects of the ministry of reconciliation in our culture. Because here's the deal. Here's, here's one of the persecutions that we're going to face is this. You mess up one time, and we're done with you. One time. You say one wrong thing, you do one wrong thing, you take one wrong stance, we're done. Our judgment is over for you. We're done with you. The minute you don't take the right stance on the, wrong, on the, on the one very, very, this very important thing, we're done. And the church cannot live like that. That's not who we are. When you say something offensive to me, my love for you covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean I don't come tell you, hey man, that really bugged me. Hey, that hurt my feelings. Hey, you probably have no idea, but that was crazy insensitive. You probably don't know that. My love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean we don't talk about it. It means because my love covers a multitude of sins, we can talk about it. It's the, it's, I, I used this example when I was teaching at a, a consulting deal at a business the other day. Um, the, they brought me in to teach on diversity. I know, right, obviously, me. But the, um, the reason was they said, listen, our goal is to find out what the Bible says about this first. Then we'll talk about all the other conversations. But first we know what the Bible says about this, and I trust you to know that. So let's start there. And this is one of the things I talked about was this concept. Man, wouldn't it be great if a Christian company, if I say something that is ethnically insensitive, that instead of burning the place down, that person says, hey, you know what, <laughs> don't, don't do that. That was a huge mistake. Don't do that. Back, back up. Let's try that. Because love covers a multitude of sins, and when we love each other, we can have that. We could be leading in this conversation, and I wish that we would more and more. The world is, is going from there. Has there ever been such a graceful passage as love covers a multitude of sins? I don't think so. So, walk away from sin. 
Remember the judge. Focus on prayer. Love one another and then serve one another in community according to your gifts. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is a big deal here at our church. We talk about it kind of nonstop. And each opportunity I get to weave hospitality teaching into our thinking, I do. We have no idea what people bring to church with them. No idea. But we should know what they're going to run into once they get here. We should know that they're going to be welcomed and loved and cared about. That, that people are going to care about them and what they did bring with them. Not merely tolerance. You've heard me say many times, tolerance is the ugliest, lowliest, lowest common denominator of love. It's embarrassing. If you're known for tolerance, you probably should be embarrassed by that. If someone came and visited our church and left, and then the next week I said, hey, what was your experience like? If they said, well, I mean, I was tolerated, I would feel like, shut the doors or fire somebody. This is a bad place. I want them to be able to say, oh my gosh, I got greeted a million times. I was exhausting. It was exhausting to have so many people say hi to me. Like, do you have an introvert's door that I could sneak in so that I get greeted less? Like, this would be a, that's, that's what you want, is for people to say, and I, and I have heard that recently. I think we lost some of those habits during COVID, and we're, we're coming back from that, but recently I have heard people say, man, I, I, I cannot believe how welcomed I am. I, that should not make us weird. Every single local church should be nailing this. This is the easiest thing. We should be nailing this. So I want to encourage you. You need to be someone who looks for people you don't know if you're a member of this church and greets them and tells them you're authentically glad that they're here because you are. This is, that is a huge gift when someone gives us some of their time and says they're willing to come and give us a shot. What a risk. What a vulnerable risk for people to show up. Much less, and I didn't say this first service, but I have to comment. Um, uh, our, our good friend downtown, um, oh my gosh, Scott. Thank you. Scott Richardson, man, my brain and names. And Scott Richardson used to talk about how this idea that people, he, I don't know where he got this, but that you have like seven seconds to make an impact on somebody. I don't, I don't know how we would know that, but that was his idea. Here's the part I loved. He said, you know, the person who visits your church this morning, their, their, their grandmother may have been praying for them to come to church for 30 years. And they show up one time. They finally get up the nerve. They finally get up the guts and they show up. What are you going to do with all of her prayers? Are you going to greet him? Or are you going to make him feel like an outcast? We all face judgment, the quick and the dead. I don't want to have a bad talk about that one. This natural tendency, I, 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 and, and, but the tendency to complain about it, it says to show hospitality without, without begrudging it. I don't want to serve. I don't want to change the way I serve. I don't want to serve that hour. I have to be early. That's no fun. Um, the whispering and talking and complaining and whining that, that we do with that naturally, the Greek word here is gongosmos. I'm probably saying that wrong, but that's actually, that's a, I mean, I looked it up online. That's the way the Greek person said it, gongusmos. That just sounds ugly. Like, I don't know what that, uh, that sounds like an insult, man. You and your gongusmos, take it someplace else, man. <laughs> We're not interested in any more of your gongusmos. Some of y'all are totally going to hear that from me. I got to hold on to that word. Uh, okay, so verse 10, instead uh, of grumbling and complaining, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I love the conversation on the gifts. I love this. I love to take a weekend away and talk about it. I tend to do that again in March, um, again, to, to take some people away and talk through the spiritual gifts. I, I confess I don't know how detailed Peter and Paul meant to be about these gifts. We just don't know. Um, we divide things into parts. We love to do that, especially when it has a feel of identity or a feel of personality. We, we love to do that, and we overdo it way too much, I know. 
When I count, I find 16 gifts listed in Paul's writings in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. But listen, I don't know if that's a comprehensive list. Is that 16 of 16? Um, Or is that 16 of 64? Or is that 16 of thousands? Or kind of a, a mixture of all of that? Here's what I do know. Based on this verse and others, God gives each of us a gift to serve. To serve as an example, as a model, as a teacher, and as a leader in regards to these various vital functions of the local church. The local church, this church, needs you to practice your gifts. When you don't, the rest of us suffer. When you're not willing to practice, or you don't want to, or you're grumbling about it, wait, Gongus Moss? God gives each of us his gift. I count the 16, these 16, administration, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, helping, hospitality, knowledge, leadership, mercy, pastoring, prophecy, serving, teaching, and wisdom. I see those 16. And we need to learn to express them and understand them and learn to live them out as the Bible teaches. Um, Paul wrote this in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. How about that? Saying you're not doesn't doesn't mean you're not. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it less a part of the body. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honors to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Peter's making his own reference to this, like the Apostle Paul. You remember that you're practicing this gifts in God's name and with God's power. We should not, Peter says here, be ashamed of practicing our gifts in His name. We should not avoid it. We should be working for Him, not working for fear, certainly not fear of the world. Verse 11, for whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Peter may be dividing all the gifts into two headings, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. I don't know if he means to do that or not, but he certainly says here, whichever it is, do it according to God that he may be, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That phrase is one we slide right over in the church. So let me refocus your attention just for a second, if I've lost it. This says, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, stop and think, you and I can do something. You and I, there's something we could do that would bring glory to Almighty God. That would bring glory to the Creator of all things. And we have a gift that allows us to bring glory to Him. How that is possible, how we could even touch that, is beyond my thinking. How could anything I do have the tiniest effect on the glory of God? How ridiculous that is. That would probably be heretical if God wasn't the one who declared it. This is an amazing thought. You, I can bring glory to the Creator of all things. When I practice my gifts, I shine light on the worthiness and the wonderfulness of Almighty God? What? 
Well, that's a worthwhile thing to spend your time doing. That is worthwhile. It is worthwhile to risk life and death, bringing glory to Almighty God. Practice your gifts. And then I think Peter's so worked up at this point, which we have a hard time doing. I, he's, I think he's talking to a scribe, and I think Peter's walking around excited if he's walking around, and he's talking about these gifts, and he says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be on glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think he's, I think he's a little excited about this. And, and yet, because can you imagine the Apostle Peter, the kid from Brooklyn, I mean from Galilee, just the nobody, little nothing kid, little fisherman like everybody else, and in this passage, he has proclaimed to us that he and us are like the high priest in the Holy of Holies, that we can bring glory to Almighty God like that. How exciting a concept that is. And he is excited by it. Glory meaning splendor and honor and reputation and dominion meaning might and strength and power and majesty and superiority and supremacy. To be undone by him, to be taken by storm. And how for how long? Forever and ever. This is a worthwhile use of our life. It is worth risking our lives. It is worth suffering to agree with this statement. If I get to suffer in order to defend the statement that to him belong the glory, not you. Not the world, not the government, not anything else, and certainly not me, but to him belong the glory and the honor and the dominion and nothing else. And if that's going to cost me something, God make me strong enough to stand in the midst of that forever. What does it look like to arm yourself with his way of thinking, how to live a suffer-ready life? You're going to have to identify with Christ. We'll get a lot more of that next week. We've got to get the sin out of the camp. We don't indulge in the flesh because it makes us weak and unprepared. We recognize the power of the gospel. We remember the judge. We focus our thinking so that we can pray. We love one another to build a suffer-ready church. We show hospitality to build a suffer-ready church. And we use our gifts to speak and serve and worship the God of all dominion and glory with our entire lives. He's worthy of it forever. Amen. Stand with me if you will. I like this. I like, I'm, this pattern is probably a new pattern, so we can all get used to it. We're gonna, as I love the idea of honoring God and His Word by standing when we read some section of it. Paul's always faithful to do that when he preaches. And I've always liked that too. Um, it, it just kind of throws me off. It always has thrown me off somehow in my speaking. And yet, the idea of doing it here at the end, to, to, to end our time by going back over the passage that we just did, by standing together, focusing our attention on it, just seems like that way if everything else was lost today, you walk out with this. So, And, and when I'm done, uh, I, I will turn over uh, our time to the Schulers, and they're going to continue to lead us to sing. And if you want to sing, sing. If you want to pray, Pray if you need to focus your thinking, do it. If you need to come here and confess and pray um, whatever's going on in your life here or over in the corner, or if you need to go find someone, or in a minute when they're singing, if you've been through our welcome home uh, kind of process and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family, you can come forward while they're singing as well in a minute. So let me, let me read this and then turn it over to them. 1 Peter 4, 7-11. through 11, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. 
Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion and honor forever and ever. Amen.